Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. As would just bow your heads with me once more before we dive into the text Daniel just read for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you speak, things happen. By your word, uh, the world was created. By the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, the world was redeemed. And just as we read in 1 Thessalonians earlier, that when you come, a word of triumph will come from your mouth. And that will be the end of all things. So Lord, we are so grateful to hear your word today. We ask for grace as we hear it, but most importantly, Lord, we ask for wisdom to apply it. We pray this in your name, amen. So we've been working through Proverbs here uh, for almost two months now at Sovereign Hope, and Proverbs is a book about wisdom. If you've been with us, you understand that how we define wisdom is also important. Wisdom is not just anything we choose. We all have ideas of what wisdom is, But to know God's wisdom, we need to understand how God defines it. And we are defining wisdom in Proverbs as this. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is learning to read the world through God's eyes, not our own. Wisdom is learning to read the world through God's eyes and not our own. And much like the fear of the Lord, which we've defined as a reverent reliance upon God, wisdom humbly chooses to see and to act according to God's understanding, God's plan, God's purpose, and not our own. And the necessary lens we have, if you want to be wise, it's not thermodynamics or political science or or whatever it might be, the lens we must look through if we want to be wise is the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God. And that's because in Jesus, we begin to see things differently, things that once seemed delightful to us, That is sin and disobedience, the pleasures of the world, the desires of the flesh are shown to be dangerous. The cross shows the wages of sin. The wages are a rejection of God, which seems unpleasant to put ourselves under anyone's authority. The wages of that is death. But not only does Jesus show that what seems delightful is dangerous, he also shows us that what seems dull, that is obedience, that is honoring God, that is pursuing his plan for you, is the greatest delight. Because as the cross stood for the weight of sin, the empty tomb shows the joy of new life, new life in Jesus, whereby faith in his perfect life, we are granted a relational restoration to God himself where we are satisfied, where we are made new, and where we find deep meaning in our lives. The wisdom of the world leads to death, but the wisdom of God is life in Jesus Christ. To be wise... We see how God has provided all of that in Jesus, and we seek to see everything through that lens. And Solomon, as we've looked at, is writing the first, the prologue of this book from the perspective of a father to us as his child. But just like any child who has ever received instruction from their parent, you realize that there comes a point where you often question if mom or dad know best. Most kids understand that The parent is an authority figure, but when 
the words of authority seem to contradict with our desire for experience, we wonder if they actually have credibility in this area. Do you actually desire what's good for me? Do you actually know what's best? And I think this is illustrated, if you just look at the evolution of advertising. It used to be for whatever product or medication that you wanted, the, the spokesperson was an expert in that field, a doctor, a lawyer, a mechanic. But now if you watch TV, those voices aren't there. The experts are gone, but instead it's the voice of the consumer. We care less about what was proven true in the lab of science, and we care more about what is proven true in the lab of our own experience. Did it bring a good experience? Did it satisfy you? That's all we care about. We don't care about the appeal to authority as much, and this might seem like a challenge to Christians who believe in God's word. Christianity starts with an appeal to authority. There is a God, and you are not it. And yet, as our culture grows to exceedingly rely on experience, our hope, your hope, the hope for GCF students, is not doomed. And that's because not only is God's word an authority, but also because God is the creator of all things who wove, wove his wisdom into this world, God's word is also for our good. Our experience matters. And following Jesus has brought the experience of salvation, of joy, of delight, and of deliverance to more people than you can ever imagine. God's word is the authority and we must submit to it. But because God's word is so good, it is an authority that we want to submit to. Because the experience is beautiful. And that's what the father is going to do in this text today. He's going to lean hard into us and leverage obedience to God's wisdom. But he's going to say, you should obey not only because it's good on a moral level, but you should obey because it's going to be good for you. The experience of this wisdom is wonderful. And the big picture we're going to see today is this, is that the wise see God's wisdom in the lives of others and are encouraged to apply it in their own lives. The wise see wisdom in the lives of other faithful brothers and sisters, and then they want to apply it because they see the beauty of it. And we're seeing this in two parts today. First, in verses 1 through 19, we're going to see the generational witness of the wise. And we're going to see that in looking back. We're going to see that in two parts. But then in verses 20 through 27, we're encouraged to look into the present, to seize the day, if you would. And that's where we're going to see the present decisions of the wise. And so we're going to start with our first point today, the generational witness of the wise. And there's going to be two parts in this. We're going to start first by looking at the teachings of the grandfather. This is Proverbs 4, verses 1 through 9. Hear, O son, a father's instructions. Be attentive that you might gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful 
crown. And so here we're introduced to two new characters in kind of this prologue of Proverbs 1 through 9. We've met the father, we've met the voice of the scoffer, we've met Lady Folly, and now we meet Grandma and Grandpa. And here the dad says, when I was a boy, the only one in the sight of my mother, my parents took me aside and they said these same things. And why is he doing this? Because we're three chapters in to a father speaking to his son, and now he slips into biography. He shares his own experience in his own family to show, I'm not making this stuff up. This is stuff to live by. He was taught these same principles, and look at the principles he was taught. This is the word of grandpa, beginning in verse 4. He says, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Now, there's a unique force of the words Solomon is using here that don't necessarily show up for us in English. And this theme is not the first time we encounter this theme in Proverbs chapter 4. It's actually present in Proverbs chapter 3 when he says that we should lay hold of wisdom and hold fast to her. And today we see this language where grandpa's saying, embrace her. And these words are actually words in Hebrew of romance and passion. They're the last things you want grandpa to say to you. And yet here he's saying it. And it makes sense given the context of this book. Proverbs was often used as this rite of passage for young men. As you're transitioning out into the world, this is what you need for life. And we all know that stage in our life, in our youth, where we have some desire, some longing for an intimate partner. I remember one vivid experience where uh, I was a youth pastor and we'd taken a group of kids to Silverwood, which is the worst. Um, and we were over there and the, the, the only thing worse than being in a place with lots of people in a hot sun, not having any idea where any of the children you're responsible for are, is doing that while just standing in line for hours on end. And so we were standing in line and I just remember looking, it came out of nowhere, I have no idea uh, why this particular instance struck me as such. But as I was standing there, twiddling my thumbs, I looked and there was a guy about my age with either a girlfriend or his wife. And they were holding hands, they were playfully hugging, they were talking to each other. And I just remember, I was like, if I just had that in line, life would be better. Whatever that is, I want that. I want that acceptance. I want that intimacy. I want that relationship. And here, for all of us to hear, Grandpa is saying, come and embrace her. Here she is. Look at God's wisdom. Be smitten with her. Do not let her go. Don't stop thinking about her. Don't risk being lonely without her. And here, whether you are married, dating, or single, here is the intimate partner that God has offered you wherein you, regardless of human relationships, can find deep satisfaction and belonging. And just like only how a grandpa could, he speaks to this from his own experience. Why is he calling you to embrace wisdom as you would a lover? Because he's experienced the reward of it. 
He knows the blessing of it. Did you see the experience baked in? Look at verse six. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. He knows that you are responsible to cling to God's grace in scripture, but there comes this wonderful point where it is not you who guards the beloved, but it is the beloved that guards you. God's grace is so powerful that so long as we cling, she will guard you. Verse seven, prize her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will adorn you with all of the comfort and accolades and belonging you seek in this world. All of the peace, all of the satisfaction comes here in this lover who is calling to you. Grandpa has experienced this. He knows it, which is precisely why the father is calling reference to it. And this is the benefit of the church, the body, and of church history. This church is meant to be a place where when we begin to doubt our experience, when we begin to doubt if God's word, God's wisdom is actually good for us, if lady wisdom is good enough to guard us, that we might look across the sanctuary or look across church history and see brothers and sisters in Christ who say, it was good for me. It was good for me. You see, there will be, and we will see this when we begin Proverbs 5, there will be other women in Proverbs who call for the metaphorical son to come away. There in your life are other influences who call out for your embrace. But the beauty of following Jesus as part of his church is there are men and women, brothers and sisters in this room who have also wrestled with those same calls and who have come out on the other side and says, this wisdom is good. This is better. I know in this room, those who have lost children, those who have endured abuse, those who have had the riches of the world, those who have tasted sexual freedom, those who have wrestled with same-sex attraction, those who have reached the pinnacle of success, and here, if you would ask them, here, if you would go to them, they would say, despite how loud, despite how weighty, despite how mysterious, those sound, God's wisdom is better. It was better for me, and it will be better for you. You see, Christianity is no Costco. I love Costco, but Costco, hate to break it to you, does not love you. Costco is not catered to your experience. Costco is catered to bring you in, to get you your product, and to get you out as quickly as it can. Do you perhaps think that about God's grace for you in Jesus? That at the end of time, his sales report for salvation is gonna come through and all he cares about is getting as much people, as much product, calling them to put off as much sin and put on as much holiness as he possibly can with zero concern for the actual experience of those who are saved. But Christianity is no utilitarian Costco. Christianity is a cathedral. And when you walk into it and you begin to look around, you realize that every aspect of architecture and every piece of art is meant to bring you a feeling of satisfaction of what lies beyond us, of bridging the gap between broken humanity and the divine God who has condescended in Jesus Christ for your good. We will all struggle with our experiences at times to trust that God actually knows what's good for us. 
And the privilege he gives us is the witness of those who have gone before us, who call out and say, this is good. Consider St. Augustine in the fifth century who spent his life pursuing happiness and made clubs around it and wrote towards that end only to finally find it in Jesus. Think of Eric Little, who as a gold medal winner left a lavish life of sponsorships and preaching engagements in England to serve Christ as a missionary in China. Think of David Brainerd, who wrestled with crushing depression and anxiety but who found such a compelling purpose for his own life and a desire for the glory of God that he endured the lonely work of evangelizing the Native Americans in North America. You see, the gift that God gives to you in his church are witnesses who speak us words when we need it to confirm what you might doubt, that God is good, not just good morally, but good experientially, that you will not suffer loss by pursuing his mercy in Jesus. And we need this because look in Jeremiah 6. In Jeremiah chapter 6, the prophet is outlining the good way, the good path, and look at how foolish our hearts are. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. This is on a page break for me. So rest for your souls is the end of a page. And I imagine to turn the page and hear people say, Hallelujah, Jesus. Rest for our souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We need not only the God who is in authority, but we need to believe what God has said in his authority, that it is good for us. And this path is so good, yet the people didn't choose it because they didn't believe God to be true. They didn't believe he could really fulfill his promise of rest for his soul. But here Solomon, as our metaphorical father, says, this is what grandpa said, and son, it's been good for me. It's been good for me. This is the second part of the generational witness, the appeal of the father. Read with me in Proverbs 4, 10 through 19. This is what the father says to the son. Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. If you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they, that is the evil, cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of wickedness is like deep, like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So here the father brings back this theme we've seen in Proverbs, these two paths, the paths of righteousness and wisdom and the path of foolishness and sin. And why should we believe this father? Why should we believe that walking on this path is good? Because he's like, look at me. I'm old, I'm here. This was good for me and it will be good for you too. 
The father says he's reached the ripe old age and we should heed that. And his specific message is to stay on the path of righteousness. Don't go down the path of wickedness. He knows that the experience of God's faithful saints is not the only witness of experience you will have. You'll encounter the promises of the world, the allure of wealth, the promise of sin. Why do we sin? Because sin promises us an experience of good. We listen to it not because it presents something terrible. Sin doesn't try to get us to eat our green beans. Sin's trying to get us to eat the cake of disobedience. But look at what this father says is behind the call of sin in verses 14 through 19. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they, that is the wicked, cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter and brighter until full day. The way of wickedness is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Do you read these contrasts? Remember, right, we said key to Proverbs is this comparing and contrasting. And we see this here, right? The path of wicked is deep darkness and stumbling, but the path of righteous is the path of light and the path of security. And what's interesting is the path of wicked has no loss of advocates. It always seems to be more. Any movie you've ever watched, the bad guys always have more. That is true in life. It always seems that those who are of the side calling out to us for what is wrong have the greatest crowd to say it's right. And yet these advocates, it says, are those whose bread is violence who consume evil, and they call out to you not because they have found some perfect satisfaction in their disobedience, but because they know that misery loves company. They're calling out to you not out of a platform of completeness. They're actually calling out to you and inviting you to join into it because they have found it to be less than satisfying, and yet they think that if they could get enough people to eat the same thing they're eating and say, ah, at last I have found my satisfaction, that they too might convince themselves that this life satisfies. But it doesn't. They can't sleep unless they're joined in their unrest. They are constant to call us to join. And we know this. How many of us take a whiff of something rancid from the fridge and our first thing is to make our friend or our spouse smell it? We want people to share in our experience even if it's foul because it brings to us a sense of being understood and finding belonging. But here the father says, dear son, there is a pleasant path. There is a sweet smell. Run away from the path of evil. Trust the path of obeying this God. And I think there's a wonderful point of application in this text that applies generally to us as the church and specifically to those of you who have kids. And that is, what will your child or those whom you're discipling, what will they walk away from you with and treasure? There are two things I'm always looking in my life to use as an anecdotal illustration to convince my son of two things. One, that being a fan of the constantly mediocre nine and seven Tennessee Titans is the joyful life. 
Anything I do, I'm always talking about that. Anytime there's a football player on TV, I reference the football players he likes for the Titans. I also want to convince him that Missoula, Montana is the greatest city in the world. His mom thinks Southern California is best, and so when seasons change like this, even though it was miserable this morning, I'm like, look at this snow. Isn't this great? I'm looking for small things, and I'm impressing them into his life that he might love the Titans, that he might enjoy Missoula. What are those things you have in the lives of those who are in your community group or the kids who are in your home or your spouse or your roommate? You see, it's quite possible that many of us will make out of our children and our friends fine hunters, avid conservationists, good employees, stellar students, disciplined athletes, and yet miserable Christians. Or even worse, unchristians. Here the father in pleading with his son is not pleading for the accolades or the barometer benchmarks of the world, but instead he is pleading with him for the reward of the gospel. That you might know it and not forsake it. Above all else, my son, know this. Augustine, as I mentioned, spent his life pursuing happiness. This was largely pressed on him by his parents. His father spared no cost, left no door unturned that so this bright young man might advance in rhetoric and advance in law and be well uh, paid for, well respected in his community. And at the end of all of this, look at, at how Augustine reflects on the, the emphasis of his father in his life. He says, far, for many far abler citizens did no such thing for their children. That's all the privileges his father provided. But yet that same father had no concern how I grew towards God or how chaste I were, but only that I were copious in speech, however barren I was to God. When you consider your children or the relationships you have with those in the church, does the thrust of your counsel and the end of your hope lead them to, above all things, grasp the gospel and its reward? To say, my dad finds satisfaction in this, and I know I might too. That's not to say we don't teach other things, but that's to say that we ought to examine our emphasis in life. God has placed you just as this father does so that we might stand with others and say, but the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the day comes. Our lives preach the joy of the gospel to those around us. So what do we do with this? Well, there's two things we might do to model this legacy of witness. And the first is, is that for your kids or for those in your community group, for those who are here, is that we openly talk about times where we chose the wrong path. We talk about times where we didn't trust that God was good for us and instead we ate the, the wages, the reward of our sin and we know its emptiness and its pain. As a church, we don't glory in our sin, but we humbly, as with a limp, share with others that we've been down that road and it was not the good life, but instead we show the surpassing value of the gospel. But then secondly, 
Share and show places in your life where by God's grace, you're experiencing the, the greater day-by-day light of the gospel becoming bigger in your life. True Christians, Christians who understand the order of salvation, that nothing we do earns our salvation, but our salvation by grace through faith changes everything we do, we cannot outboast the gospel. We do not need to be meek about boasting about what God is doing in us because we understand that if anything good is done in us, any sin that is put off, any evangelistic conversation, any emphasis on missions, any good is a direct result of God's exceeding grace. And so we share that. How quick we are to share of our successes in our careers or our successes in our parenting. Dear church, do not neglect the growth of your brothers and sisters by refusing to share the places where God is growing you and you're finding him to be richly satisfying. And this is what the corporate witness of the church, of the grandfather, of the father, of your church members is meant to do. Look at how the author of Hebrews states this in Hebrews chapter 12. Encouragement leads to obedience. Since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why does God give us the weight of experience? Why has God given left side, the right side people? So that we might obey. So we might see the surpassing value of the gospel and endure in it. And this is where the father now goes with the second point this morning. The present decision of the wise. Look, it was good for me. It was good for grandpa. It was good for church history. Now what are you going to do? Read with me Proverbs 4, 20 through 27. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So after showing the generational witness of wisdom, dad says, do this. Will you do this? In fact, he built into this text um, a little bit of a literary uh, uh, device that stresses the importance to actually have you do the work of listening to wisdom. And I texted Johnny to see if there is a music device that was similar to what Solomon is doing in this text. And he introduced me to something that's called deceptive cadence. And deceptive cadence goes like this. If you hear enough verses of a song, you'll begin to recognize that this note leads to this note that leads to this note in this chorus. But there might be times in the song where you hear that same series of notes that you think is progressing to the exact same place, but the composer introduces tension with a deceptive cadence. And that's that just as you hear note A and you hear note B, and you begin to accept note C, he introduces a new note and a new chord, which creates a distinct emphasis in the song. 
And that's, look, if, if, we, if we're doing some Bible study here, look with me in your Bible. We see this uh, pattern, this chorus that Solomon is developing. Almost every time at each, at three points in the text, he does two things. He introduces a call with a twofold admonition, and then he gives a singular reward. Look at, with me at verse one. Hear, O sons, be attentive. Hear and be attentive. Twofold admonition, and then the reward that you may gain insight. Look at verse 10. Hear my son and accept my words. Twofold admonition, here comes the reward, that the years of your life may be many. Now look at verse 20. He's setting us up. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my saying. There's a twofold admonition. What comes next? A reward. But that's not what we see, right? He doubles down. He says again, let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. He, perfect, he purposely extends the list of admonitions to add a level of importance to your ability to do just this. Hold fast to this wisdom. Do not miss the work necessary for this. Why? Because look at how good the reward is. They are life to those who find them, healing for all their flesh. In other words, the reward of this life is so wonderful, so pervasive, so healing, so experientially satisfying that you, that me, that we need to take every effort to make sure we do not skip the hard work of finding these truths and hiding them in our hearts. You see, the, the stumbling block for me when I am in Proverbs is that it just seems so easy, doesn't it? Who would want the path of darkness, but not the path of light? The way of wisdom might seem wonderful. It might seem simple, but the truth is it's not easy. It takes dedication to work God's faithfulness and the deliverance that Jesus has given us deep into our hearts to begin to see this world through eyes not our own. But when it's there, when we, by God's grace, begin to rely more and more on God's, on God's provision to us in Jesus Christ, when we trust Jesus' grace and Jesus' performance above our own, and we trust obedience to be deeply rewarding, even when our experiences say otherwise, it brings healing to every aspect of our life. And you see that because what goes on is you see he begins to talk about the heart, the mouth, the eyes, and the feet. And we see this here. If you want wisdom, this is what it looks like to keep it. If you want to keep wisdom, these are the things you ought to do. And so he gives us three things in closing. First, keep your heart. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I remember seeing a commercial once. I think it was for Sprite. And they're trying to convince you you should drink Sprite and not bottled water because that's healthy. And so what they did is there was this guy up on this mountain showing you this pristine mountain stream and then the camera panned and at the head of the stream were a bunch of bears taking a bath and relieving themselves in the water. And the point was, if the source is bad, the bottom's gonna be bad. If it's corrupt at the top, it'll be corrupted at the bottom. And Solomon's making the same point here with the heart of the wise. Everything starts with your heart. Man, the New Testament, in, this, in, in kind of the Greek culture it was written to, talks a lot about the mind. 
And that's what a lot of Christianity grew in, is thinking of Christianity as this exercise of the mind. But here, I love the Bible because it holds up the mind and the heart. The center of the Hebrew existence was the heart. And it says, keep your heart with all vigilance. For the nature of your heart dictates everything that flows from it. Now, here's the reality. You cannot keep your heart pure enough. You can't. You cannot guard your heart enough to become so morally pure that God will be pleased by your righteousness. But the beauty of the gospel is that our faith in Jesus Christ cleanses our hearts. That Jesus actually takes our old corrupted heart of stone and gives us a new heart of flesh, one that cries out for God, hardwired with the default setting, Abba, Father. And so the life of a Christian is not to become so pure that God is pleased with us. The life of a Christian is to live in the purity that Christ's righteousness has already won for us. And we guard that and we keep it. And so this is where we begin to say, what does this look like? It means you should be keenly aware of your own affections. What delights your heart? What frustrates your heart? Last week, when Stephen preached, he said that many of you will be tempted to say terrible things about football players you don't know when you watch games afterwards. And my team, at that point, had one loss, and we lost to a team that had one win, and I had to text Stephen and repent (laughs) of the things I said to a TV screen. But when we think about what our hearts delight in, when we think about what frustrates our hearts, ask yourself this question. Does God delight in those things? And is God frustrated by those things? And I think a common experience for us might be to say, probably not. But that is a good conviction. Where we get to go to God. And we don't just say, well, Jesus will take care of it. We get to go to God and say, you have promised me a new heart. You have promised to help me grow in good affection and to put off sin to become more and more Christ-like, to be conformed more and more into the image of God, and we get to submit ourselves once again to the power of grace in our lives. To work wisdom into our hearts, you must make an effort above all things to guard your heart, to guard what Christ has done by the power of Christ. But secondly, we also separate broken mouths. We put broken mouths far from us, Proverbs 4, 24. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. This list isn't a la carte that he's about to give. It's not that he's going to give four things you should do. If you could get three of the four, that's the majority and you're good. This is all interwoven, right? From the heart, everything else flows. And so if the heart is good by God's grace, you should see good fruit here. And to see bad fruit here doesn't just speak of I'm particularly weak in this area. It speaks to a heart issue. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And there is an astounding thing in this text where we are so quick to, I am so quick to justify my speech because it's just speech. Now Jesus gets ahead of that in Luke 6. He says, it's not just speech. It's your heart. But more than that, did you notice what it says? That crooked speech can quickly become devious talk. What is he saying there? He's saying that words dictate action. That your coarse joke 
might be giving way to a perverse plan. That your harmful words might actually be a devious plot. That your sarcasm might become active hatred. It might seem so far in a Western culture from our heart to our heads, but our words biblically go straight to our hands. And so he says, put it away. Coarse joking, idle talk, gossip, lies, slander, hate, have nothing to do with it. We keep our hearts, we guard our mouths, and lastly, we're gonna lump the feet and the eyes together, and we're gonna see we look where you walk. Proverbs 4, 25 and 27. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. How many times when you're driving in a week do you see a billboard, which kind of defeats the purpose? See a billboard, hear it on the radio or on your podcast, don't text and drive. Because they know one look, regardless of how straight the road is, and you could have consequences that you could never imagine. Solomon makes the same case here. Keep your eyes focused on on the road of righteousness, on the prize of your gaze, and you'll be okay. But to take your eyes off for one moment, it could prove to be costly. And this is exactly, when we look at Hebrews, where he's saying, look at this encouragement that's around you, therefore obey. He also ties the object of your gaze. Look again at Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's Jesus' experience. Crushed but then celebrated. Killed but then raised. Mocked but then exalted. And that is what we set our gaze on. More than just a warning, this is a promise that if you fix your eyes on Jesus, your paths will be sure. If you do the hard work of turning towards Christ and keeping your foot from evil, you will find God's experience to be wonderfully satisfying even when every fallen part of our heart says, don't do this, it's not safe. God knows what is good for us. And so when you consider the path of your feet, if you were to look up What would be the object of your gaze? Where are your feet headed? And what stands at the end of that road? Because as the church, our feet are set to glory in Jesus Christ. And when those around us see us, they too should see this. There's a scene in Indiana Jones, I believe it's in the last crusade, where he finds the Holy Grail. It's in this room that He's separated by with this vast chasm in this pit that goes to nowhere. And he remembers as he's standing there on this precipice this riddle about an invisible bridge. 
So those of you who have seen it, he takes some dust and he throws it out there and sure enough, the dust falls and there's this really narrow, invisible bridge that gets him from there to where he wants to go. And as I initially sat down with this text, I'm like, this is a super good illustration for the path of righteousness. And yet as I studied this text, and as I hope we'll see together today, I realized that this is a wonderful illustration of the exact opposite point. You see, we often think that a life spent obeying Jesus, a life spent walking in God's wisdom, is a life risked on an invisible path. We don't know where it is, it's scary, we don't have a lot of confidence, and the best we might have to show us the way is a little bit of dust. But here in this text, what have we seen? We've seen grandpa saying, this is the path. We've seen the dad saying, the light shines brighter on it every day. We've seen in Proverbs 4 that your foot will not slip. We see in Hebrews 12 how visible and wonderful it is. You see, it is not the path of Christ which seems suspect and invisible. It is, in fact, the path of sin. For no one can show its satisfaction. No one can show you its ways. But in our life, we might kick up enough dust and see enough dust from our unsaved friends and coworkers to think that maybe this might be true. But all the while, there is a different path. A path that, make no doubt, Jesus says is narrow. Narrow, but not invisible. Not untrodden not unreliable, not suspect. Solid is the road, faithful is the path, the path on which the light shines brighter every day and every saint to have ever trod it stands beside you saying, this is the way, this is the path, this is good. Continue on. If you want experience, this is the book that seals it. This is what promises that the experience you find at the end of the road is not disheartening damnation, but the, condemn, or, but the, the commendation of Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you want a sure step? Here is the path. Christ has shown it. The church before you has tread upon it. Will you choose to experience it? To neither turn to the left nor to the right, but to trust the obedience that comes in walking in grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just as will be almost the forever conclusion of Proverbs, by grace may we do it. By grace may we see it. By grace May we experience it. Lord, I pray that our lives are helpful witnesses to those around us, that we give good precepts in the gospel, that this way is the way that the light shines more on it every day until the final day comes. Lord, I pray that you would correct our hearts when we have chosen to listen to the experience of the world instead of the experience that Jesus gives us in the gospel. I pray that this church might be a witness to this city of the joy that comes in seeing this world through the lens of Jesus. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.